Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is June 9th, 2014, and this is episode 1363 of the Survival Podcast. It is a Monday, and this is uh, where I usually do a show with listener feedback. We're going to skip and do that on uh, Tuesday. I'm going to do my standalone show this week on Monday because I've got something in my uh, in my head and therefore on my heart, and it harkens back to my rant on Friday about the public education sector and a teacher who legalized cheating, and that's what it is. They allowed a child uh, who was considered a weaker learner to use a crib sheet or cheat sheet, they call it an information card now, uh, to take their test. A lot of people, you know, kind of defended that and said, hey, you know, it's math and uh, they're writing formulas down and stuff and it doesn't mean that, you know. Okay, here's my problem, just in case I wasn't clear with that. Just in case I wasn't clear. My problem with that approach was only the weaker student got to use the cheat sheet, then took the same test, was given the same grade, and then had the same, you know, results, good or bad reported and then graduated the class based on whether or not they had supposedly mastered the material, thereby taking the child and having them pass along to the next grade and become the next teacher's problem, though they hadn't mastered the skills sufficient to go on to, let's say, seventh grade mathematics or whatever subject this would be in. If we say that in this testing that it's okay to use this type of additional information, and it may very well be in certain instances and subjects and tests, etc., then every student in the class should be afforded the same opportunity. But I'm not going to rant today and make a commitment to you. I'm not going to rant. I'm not going to snap out. I'm not going to yell. I'm not going to play any sounds of explosions or anything like that. Um, today's show is going to be called The Reformation of Public Education via Obsolescence. It's going to be kind of a two-part show. Uh, in the first half, I'm going to explain to you why there's nothing left to be done. There's, there's, there's no fixing this. There's too many things wrong, and that in the end, I'm going to tell you that even if we went back to the way things used to be, that wouldn't fix the problem because school wasn't really very good back then either. Yeah, I said it. I'm serious. And then I'm going to tell you how I think we can fix this problem, and it is through obsolescence. Before I do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsor, sponsor of the day number one today, Backwoods Home Magazine. Hey, you know, uh, when I was a young man, uh, just out of the Army, back in 1993, I ended up in Texas, in a place called Louisville, which is a suburb of Dallas, a northern suburb of Dallas. And I was surrounded by more city than I'd ever seen in my life. And the, the Dallas Metroplex is even a bigger mess and bigger sprawl than Panama City, Panama, which had up until that point been the biggest city I'd ever really spent much time in. And uh, I was so far from my roots as a country boy. And uh, I found a mall nearby, and I used to walk up to that mall. This is back when I was broke, before I found my first job down here. And uh, I'd walk around the mall and look at things and kind of daydream. It's always been something I've done is take walks and daydream, whether it's in the woods or in stores or whatever, things that stimulate my mind. I found this magazine called Backwoods Home back in 1993. started reading it, and it let me connect with the roots that were so far away from me in the, in the, in the mountains of Pennsylvania. And a lot of that information was internalized and became many of the things I've taught you over the years on the Survival Podcast. I've been a subscriber 
about a year after that, I got on my feet, and the first magazine I ever subscribed to in my life was Backwoods Home. I've been a subscriber ever since. You should consider being one as well. Backwoods Home Magazine, available at BackwoodsHome.com. Next up today, KnifeKits.com. You know, one of the things we're really missing in America today is skill sets, the ability to do stuff. Um, I remember back in the day, you know, my dad, my grandparents, my uncles and all, I mean, the concept of calling a guy to fix something was just obscene. They're going to charge you money and he's going to rip you off, right? But the real reason was because they're like, well, I can do that. Because what I always noticed is when they got into a situation where something they really couldn't do, they either went to a friend or they did call a guy. You know, or they didn't have time to do it because they had to work. They did call a guy. But in the end, they always wanted to do things for themselves. We've lost that. And a big part of that is just basic knowledge and skills. Well, one way we can start is by learning crafts that used to be commonplace in the world, like building knives. You can learn how to do that at knifekits.com, and they make it easy. You can buy a kit that's very easy to assemble and do the final fit and polishing, etc. You can take it from there and go as far as you want to with it, but at least get started. It'll teach you basic hand tools. It'll teach you basic design. It'll let you build something custom and unique. And what a great project to do with uh, one of your kiddos. Check it out today, knifekits.com. Remember both knifekits.com, Backwoods Home, and many of our other sponsors and over 40 supporting vendors do offer you discounts in our member support brigade. Please consider joining my member support brigade if you haven't already. If you become a member, you can uh, support the show at 18.3 cents an episode if you think we're worth it. And you'll get all those great discounts that will more than pay for your membership on everything in the prepping world, from the tactical to the practical, from guns to garden, and everything in between. It's all there. You can learn more just by clicking on members at the survivalpodcast.com. If you are military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty or prior service, or a first responder like an EMT, paramedic, or firefighter, you do qualify for my service discount. Just email me with service discount in the subject line. Send that email to jack at the survivalpodcast.com. And one or two sentences tell me about your service, either prior service or active service. Either one qualifies. Do that before you join the MSB, though, not after. With that, Let's get into the main topic of today's show. It's a Monday, so we are going to do our Conflicted Monday. Um, Conflicted Monday comes from the uh, informational card deck called Conflicted Survival Scenarios, where you get a deck of cards, you, everybody draws a card one at a time, a person reads the card, they hear a scenario, they say, this is what I would do. The rest of the group gives their thoughts on what they would do. The person that drew the card, after giving their initial thoughts, hearing everybody else gives their final thoughts on that scenario, And then everybody in the group scores that individual on a score of 1 to 3. And you play as many rounds as you want to, and at the end, whoever has the high score wins. Um, can't do that here, but what we can do is play the game a different way. I read the scenario. You guys come to the Survival Podcast. Today you go to episode 1363 and leave your feedback as a comment on the blog. What would you do? And uh, I also always read the one from the previous week and tell you what I would do. So the previous week's Survival Scenario... Was grocery stores and mini-marts have been ransacked for all food? Your group is low on food and desperate for resources. What other locations would you start looking for food, possible supplies to barter with? Most people that answered this one said things along the lines of cafeterias, uh, foraging for food. They focused on the food. I tried to give you a clue last week as to what I would do, and nobody really took up on it. I would be going to places like junkyards, abandoned buildings, Um, any place that I could to scrounge for resources. Now, somewhere along the way, you got to eat. And I would be looking for as much food as I can along the way. But I would be going into the engineering model. What resources can we scavenge, put together, and turn into useful things that help people? 
whether it's traps so we can trap food, whether you know, no matter what it is, what can we build with the resources laying around freely? Because there's tons of stuff, and, it, and you know, this is the apocalyptic world we live in. So there would be lots of dead people. So there's plenty of stuff laying out there with nobody laying claim to it, just with what could be stripped off of cars, etc. I would be in. I would go into the manufacturing process. I would be building solar systems by scavenging batteries and panels off of highway uh, signs, things like that. And I would be using that as barter with those who had food. Now, I would hope that I wouldn't get into this scenario in the first place because you store food, you plan for this in advance. But if you ended up in that situation where food was short, but some people had it and you wanted to barter, the best thing you can do is use what you do have. And what we do know in abundance will be stuff and things. So that was my answer. Um, today's Conflicted Monday scenario. This is an interesting one. Not really an apocalyptic one, but I liked it when I drew it. And I just draw the, whatever's on the top of the deck and put the one that was uh, drawn this week on the bottom of the deck for next week. Here it is. If you could change one thing about government today, what would it be? How would this change benefit your country and benefit its people? If you could change just one thing about government today, what would it be? And how would that benefit your country and its people? Uh, before we get into my change for the public education system, let's do our history segment. Yes, we're educational. Imagine that. You can learn history and enjoy it. Kind of neat, isn't it? No good night goes unpunished. From the year 1363, Alex Shrugged puts these on the TSP wiki. The aristocracy in the Middle Ages is limited in the ways it is allowed to make money. Making profit as a merchant for more than one's basic needs of food and shelter is looked upon as exploiting one's fellows for usury. Exploitive interest on a loan. Nevertheless, the king could sell wine from his vineyards for a profit, but a knight was expected to earn his living through fighting and pillaging enemy provinces. During a lull in a war, many honorable knights end up cash poor because they honor the truce and don't beat people up and take their stuff. Since they can't sell anything except for fine wines, they are already renting their land to peasant farmers. Why not sell the land to the farmers and get a quick infusion of cash? The consequences is the knights who refuse to engage in mob tactics of the brigands get whittled down bit by bit while the peasants improve their lot, so to speak. My take by Alex Shrugged, it is clear that the aristocracy felt compelled by the social norms to maintain a certain lifestyle. Or to put it in mobster context, they couldn't look weak or they would be overrun by their neighbors or killed outright. Many of them realized that they were exploiting the peasants and tried to do something about it by lowering taxes or export fees, but such indulgences didn't last long because of the pressure of funding a war or pressure from fellow aristocrats. In the Middle Ages, it's going to take a collapse of the system to get real change. We are seeing the beginnings of this already. Knighthood is becoming less an occupation and more of an exclusive club. Knights will still fight, but there will be some knights who are not really fighters. Uh, what I keyed on this is <laughs> just amazing how some of these just fit the episode. It's going to take a collapse of the system to get real change. Uh, I'll be brief on my take today on the history segment. I just, that is it. It's going to take a collapse of the system to bring real change. And such is the case generally in anything that government has done for a long time and instilled deeply into the population. Um, I think you need to understand something about this before I move forward. You would think that all the peasants of the time would, would, have, would have, at this time, would like, let's get rid of the knights and the lords and the ladies and the barons and the kings and the heirs. No, most of the people believed it was necessary. 
They believed like I, I wish I could have more, but this is necessary. What if we what if we didn't have all this? We'd be screwed. Think about that as we go through today's show. So again, today's show was inspired by a rant I did last week. I even cut out that eight-minute segment and put it into a video with a little slide on it. Um, and I got a lot of feedback, and I was surprised at how much of it was actually negative from this audience. I I expect it to be negative from the population, but I people that listen to this show every day, you know, kind of expect it. You're at least open to the idea that well, public education sucks. Um, and I wanted to kind of. You know, people say, well, you got to be fair to teachers, be fair to educators, right? So I want to start out with today's show with explaining something to you how I feel about teachers. I think we have really great teachers, and we have really shitty teachers, okay? Both. I think that I could probably go to some places and find in certain geographies or certain school systems or certain school districts that the majority of teachers are really exceptional, great teachers. And I think I'd find other places where the majority are really shitty, I mean, bottom of the barrel, terrible, should not be teaching our children at all, okay? But the teachers are not the problem. The system is the problem. This system, and this is something that when you say it, everybody just wants to go past it and not even discuss it or oppose it or debate it because you can't debate it. This system that we have for education today The classrooms look more modern. There's brighter lights. There's, the kids aren't studying under a candlelight. There's computers in the classroom. But the system, the methodology, the philosophy of education, the scheduling, all of the regimented components of the education, the, the, the K through 12 model, the, the higher education model afterwards, the straight lines with the desks, the walking in lines, the not talking, all of this crap that we have in schools today, finds its roots in the 1880s Prussian model of education. This is the very model of education that was so cemented into Germany that it led us to a population that willingly embraced the Third Reich and, and led to World War II. Now, this is the education model we're using today. Now, I'm not saying... That if we keep doing this, we're going to end up with another Third Reich-style thing, you know, concentration camps and all that. I'm just saying, that is the model that the German people were educated under, and they did end up in that situation. And it's it's interesting to me that our nation is highly fascist today. It really is. And I know there's people freaking out right now because you've not heard me explain this before. And I wish I could get to a point like where when somebody's listening to my shows that I know there's certain words they've heard the definitions of, but I can't, so I have to go back and explain this. Fascism is not a system to put people to death in concentration camps. That's something a fascist government did. There's been other governments who were not fascist who did the same thing. Okay, There is a, an attempt right now in, in parts of Africa at genocide, and it's not being done by fascists. Right? There's a different ilk that is doing that. Fascist is an economic system where the public and private sectors work together, leverage divisions between the classes for the benefit of the state and the industry. Now, in classic fascism, the state was in control and industry followed suit behind the state and they cooperated. And they saw themselves as mediators between the classes in a cooperative manner to make more money and more power for both sides. The corporatocracy wants its money. The bureaucracy wants its power. That's classic fascism. 
What we have in the United States today is neo-fascism. Neo-fascism is simply that we have taken the role of the state and the role of the corporatocracy and flipped it so the corporatocracy actually has the guiding role. So the, the, the industry guides government, but both are still working together in the same paradigm. And this is accepted in our country. No, when you tell somebody is fascist, unless they are somebody that's actually, you know, involved with the liberty movement and have actually ex examined these things and asked these questions, can even comprehend what you're talking about, it always creates a knee-jerk reaction. But if you actually get someone clear enough and calm enough to listen to the socioeconomic components to textbook fascism and then say to them, make me a case that that is not the system of economics and government in the United States today, they cannot do it. They may still say, well, it's not true, but if you say make the case, use logic to make the case that that's not true in America today, they can't do it. And then it begins to open their minds. That's why I challenge you with that up front today. But... What I really want to do today is, is, is two parts. I want, to, I want to just make you understand the current public education system is indefensible. No matter what you think about teachers, teachers, okay, teaching is a job, right? Teaching is a life calling. There are teachers all over the place. I fancy myself to be a teacher. I feel like I'm teaching every day. There are teachers that teach little children and teachers that teach the developing minds of adolescents. And there are teachers that teach young minds who are figuring out what they want to do at like a collegiate level. But they're teachers. Okay? They're teachers. Teachers are not school. School is not teachers. Teachers are employed by school systems. School systems are the issue. Not the teachers employed by them. Now, I don't think teachers do enough to buck the system. I don't think teachers do enough to challenge their students in general. And I think teachers end up, within five years, burnt the hell out on education. And they do one of two things. Well, it pays decent, and the system's written for me, so I will comply and do what I'm expected to do, and at least I get to be around the kids that I love, And I'll do my best with what I have to work with, or they quit. Very small segments find exceptional schools, or private teaching opportunities, or something else to do with that talent they have as a teacher. Most either just go do something completely different, sell real estate or something, or they just accept it. They just become a cog in the system. doesn't make them bad people. They are not the problem. So when you condemn school, people defend teachers, all right? How can I explain this? This would be like if we had a sport where people killed each other, all right? But a sport where people killed each other. And we had a whole system designed for people like gladiators. And they, they people got on into a ring and killed each other with swords. And some people won and some people lost and they died. And these people had coaches, okay? And the coaches were brought up in the same system that accepted the sport in the first place. And the coaches were saying, I'm trying to keep my person alive. And we said, this is wrong. This must be stopped. And, and, they, and the defense was, coaches are good people. They're trying to keep their guy alive. It's a bit of a stretch for a metaphor, but I've got to take you out that far to make you understand you have to separate teacher from school 
Okay, The people that run schools are not teachers. Some of them used to be. And if, if a person is in a controlling administrative role in a school that used to be a teacher, rest assured the system has fully burned them out by the time they go into that role. And many people come into those roles out of other sectors and have never actually stood in front of a classroom and taught children. Many people making the decisions about the directions of our school never taught anybody. And the people that, that went to Germany and brought this system here and instituted it certainly did not. So hopefully you understand it. Teachers, one group, school system. Teachers are people. The school system is a system. It is the problem. And my biggest problem with schools is I think they are little more than minimum security prisons at this point. I'm going to give you my 15 ways, real quick, that I think that prisons and schools are the same. Number one, you're sent without your consent. Education is compulsory. Children are forced to go. Whether they want to or not, whether their children want them, their parents want them to or not. There is legal penalty through the force of the state to punish you if you do not either send your child to school or conform to the state mandates when you see your child's own education. You basically have to get permission from the state to not send your child to their prison. Number, number two, the sentence is measured in years. There is an age at which children are told, if you don't want to complete this, you don't have to, you're out. But up until that point, it remains compulsory. It's measured in years. You're told when to eat, okay? You're told what to eat. And you either eat crap or in prison you buy from a commissary. And the commissary is full of what? Junk food. This is our school system today. The school lunches are garbage. The school lunches are crap. And you know that they are. And then people say, the cafeteria workers are doing the best. School system, cafeteria workers. Cafeteria workers are people. The school system is a system. You understand? You have to bifurcate between the two. Right? If you give a cook garbage to cook and they do the best they can with it, it's still garbage. So let's stop defending the individual when we're attacking the system. But you look at our schools today, and what's in the McDonald's, Burger King, Chick-fil-A, Pizza Hut? So if the, the kids that can afford commissary privileges and not eat the school crap, buy junk food, just like prison. Funded with taxpayer money. Money is taken from you, whether you want it or not, and used to, to, to run that institution without your consent and largely without your input. Just like there are people that I don't believe belong in that prison that my money is used to keep in prison, there's people that do not belong in public schools and my money is used to force them into that school. Nonconformists are punished, medicated, and labeled as problems. If you put somebody in a prison, now people will say, well, we have to do that in prison. I, I, I agree. I agree. If we, the population of prison is too big. There's plenty of people there that are nonviolent offenders that, you know, their crime is they took a drug or something. They don't belong in prison. But I agree. When we have an actual person that's in prison for a crime against somebody else and they are a violent person, yes, we have to do these things. But we don't have to do them in schools. So let's keep in mind that we're comparing something we have to do in one institution with something we're choosing to do in the other. But in, in prison, if you're a nonconformist, if you don't do everything you're asked to do, you're punished, you're medicated, and they label you on your file as a problem. 
In schools, children who do not conform to all the things that we expect them to do as what we call normal, which I think is one of the most arrogant uses of a hu of, of an English word in my in the world. I, I, I the the arrogance to say, well, this is normal and this isn't. Who the hell are you to make that determination? Anyway, a child in our school system today who does not conform is punished, medicated, and labeled as a problem by teachers right in their file. Same thing. There is security to prevent you from leaving. Well, we, we can't have little children just running away. Uh, why are they trying to run away? There's a difference between security to make sure a person doesn't hurt themselves and actual confinement. Our schools are confinement centers. See, you, you look, look at it this way. You're a parent. You got a park. You tell your kid, don't leave this area. Um, and they, they leave the area for whatever reason. Your only concern is to get them back to where they're safe, not to write them a ticket or something. Does that happen? We'll, we'll get to that. All right? Okay. There's no force of the state involved there. Okay? They have internal justice systems. If you do something that breaks the rules in prison, even if it's something that would be a crime on the outside, it's handled differently in prison than it would be on the outside. Okay, they have their own punishment systems. They have their own judicial review systems. They decide, and in the end, your appeal means nothing in prison. Okay? Sounds like school to me. There are things done by one student to another in schools that if they were done by one adult to another at a place of work, the other adult would be immediately terminated and probably do jail time. Because they're told to just get along, to deal with it. And that brings me to my next one. Fights are treated more like a problem than a crime. If you strike somebody, it is a criminal action. If you, unprovoked, put your hands on someone, it is an assault. We do not, we do not acknowledge that amongst our children. Well, kids will fight. And I agree to a point. I agree to a point. But the way it's done now leads to a lot of other problems we'll get to in a second. Overpopulation is a major problem. Too many, too many, just too many prisoners in the prisons. They have people, they're letting people go. They should stay and keeping people in that shouldn't, just like school, um, in prisons because they're out of space. Well, have you seen some of our schools lately? How crowded they are? Overpopulation is a major problem. Too many people in one place is just not good. It's just bad. It creates a lot of the other problems. Parents are not allowed to visit without approval and can be denied entry. You have to get permission to go visit your prisoner. Uh, I mean your student. Got that? Parents are forced to comply with a doctor's note requirement for some absences. Well, what's that like with prison? I would call it work release. See, it, it drove me crazy. Now, actually, we just didn't comply. They... My son, when he was in high school, they had a rule, if you were absent for two days in a row, you had to have a doctor's note. Well, what if I want to take my son to, I don't know, SeaWorld, to learn about marine biology, and I am deciding to pull him out of school for a couple days? No, you can't do it without a doctor's note. Yeah, okay, what are you going to do about it? Well, in some places, that doesn't work. Who is the state to tell you Whether or not you can take your student on independent study, they treat it like work release from a prison. Why? Because if the students are not in school enough days, they lose funding. It's all about the money. 
Just like prisons, if you don't keep a certain population, the prison loses some of its public funding. You got that? How simple that is? Um, parents, uh, I mean, individuals are told to just fit in. When there is a problem that should be addressed, people just say, deal with it. We tell students who are being mercilessly picked on, hey, you got to learn to fit in. Find your group. Fit in. There's rapes, suicides, and killings in schools today. No. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Type high school rape in the Google News. Murders and suicides, I think we're all familiar with. One aggressive teacher, administrator, or fellow student can ruin a person's life in school. One kid that has a bully that's just stronger and tougher than he is, that just singles him out, can ruin his life. One teacher with a power trip can ruin the life of a student. A student has no recourse. One administrator can do this. What recourses are for the student? We had a problem with one teacher the entire time my son was in school. And my, my, my statement to his vice principal was, if this re re remains a problem... I will remove my son from her class. And he told me, you cannot do that. <laughs> Because they had a fiscal responsibility to the taxpayers to make sure the class stayed a certain size. Fortunately, we didn't have to have that showdown. But I promise you, I would not have given up. So that means if that teacher really had it out for him, and in the end, I don't think she did. I think she was just a poor teacher that did some dumb things. But if she did... The school was saying, you have no recourse. Your student must deal with this person. That happens with bullies, that happens with administrators, that happens with teachers. That's like a prison. A warden, a guard, or an inmate can make the life of another prisoner a living hell, just like school. And both are failures. If we look at the graduation rates of schools, especially when they're cheating to even increase those graduation rates, And the recidivism issue uh, rates of prison, they're both catastrophic failures that cost taxpayers millions and millions of dollars. But I'm not done with my comparison, even though that's 15. That's my comparison anyway. Um, I wondered if anybody else felt this way, and um, I pulled up an article on LouRockwell.com. Uh, it's originally from End of the American Dream. Copyright 2011, so things are probably worse now. 18 signs that life in U.S. public schools is now essentially equivalent to life in prison. These are all cases out of the media, reported and verified, every single one of them, all 18. Number one, Virginia Attorney General Ken Kubishini has announced that school officials can search cell phones and laptops of public school students if there is reasonable grounds for suspecting the search will turn up evidence that the student has violated or is violating either the law or the rules of the school. Reasonable grounds for suspecting. Reasonable grounds for suspecting? That's pretty nonspecific. Number two, it came out in court that one school district in Pennsylvania secretly recorded more than 66,000 images of students using webcams that were embedded in school-issued laptops that the students were using at home. They were taking pictures of your kids at home through the computers they gave them, such, such nice guys. If you can believe it, a certified TSA official was recently brought in to oversee student searches at a Santa Fe high school prom. Those blue guys at the airport 
are overseeing student searches at your high school prom. A few years ago, a class of third grade students from one Kentucky elementary school were searched by a group of teachers after $5 went missing. During the search, the student was actually required to remove their shoes and socks. How long before they're removing their pants? At one public school in the Chicago area, children have been banned for bringing their lunches from home. Yes, you read that correctly. Students of a particular school are absolutely prohibited from bringing lunches from home. Instead, it is mandatory that they eat the food the school cafeteria serves. Even prisoners can go to the commissary, folks. Number six, the U.S. Department of Agriculture is spending huge amounts of money to install surveillance cameras in the cafeterias of public schools so the government control freaks can closely monitor what our children are eating. By the way, if you doubt any of these, I'll put a link in the show notes to this article. Everyone has a link to a source. Number seven, a teenager in suburban Dallas was recently forced to take a part-time job after being ticketed for using bad language in one high school classroom. The original ticket was for $340, but additional fees have raised the total bill to $637. So if your kid says shit in the classroom, you can get a ticket for money. Um, I'll tell you what. When I was a kid, if that had happened... Kid might have been in trouble with the parents, but the parents would have had the principal drug out of the school to explain themselves, physically if necessary. It would never have flown. Number eight, it's not just high school kids that are being ticketed by police. In Texas, the crackdown extends all the way down to elementary school students. In fact, it's been reported that Texas police gave a thousand tickets to elementary school kids over a recent six-year period. They're giving tickets to elementary school students. A few months ago, a 17-year-old honor student in North Carolina named Ashley Smithwick accidentally took her father's lunch with her to school. It contained a small paring knife, which, she would, which he would use to slice up apples. So what happened to the standout student when the school discovered this? The school suspended her for the rest of the year, and the police charged her with a misdemeanor. Like she had a shank, folks. Number 10, a little over a year ago, a six-year-old girl in Florida was handcuffed and sent to a mental facility after throwing a temper tantrum at her elementary school. So when I was a kid, if you threw a temper tantrum, they jerked you up off your butt and put you in the corner. And if that didn't work, they called your parents and said, you know, bring them back when you get your shit together. Now they handcuff you and take you to a mental ward. Six years old. Handcuffed. Take it to a mental ward. I said I wouldn't snap out, but really... Can, can you get a little angry with me, guys, please? Can you, can you make sure you have a freaking pulse here? In early 2010, a 12-year-old girl in New York was arrested by police and marched out of her school in handcuffs just because she doodled on her desk. I love my friends Abby and Faith was what she reportedly wrote on her desk. She wrote on the desk and they... Is there anybody in this audience that never wrote on their desk once in school? When I got caught, I had to clean all the desks and scrape all the gum off of it. I certainly wasn't handcuffed in front of my peers. I, this, the people responsible for this should just be fired immediately. Um, there, number 12, there are actually some public schools in the United States that are so paranoid that they have actually installed cameras in the bathrooms. So your kid can't take a dump without being on camera. 13, down in Florida, students have actually been arrested by police for bringing a plastic butter knife to school for throwing an eraser, or for drawing a picture of a gun. 
Number 14, the Florida State Department of Juvenile Justice has announced that it will begin using analysis software to predict crime by young delinquents and will place potential offenders in specific prevention and education programs. ADSEG, okay? Any of you guys that watch the prison shows and the jail cells? ADSEG, that's what that is. A group of high school students are made national headlines a while back when they revealed that they ordered by, secu by a security guard to stop singing the national anthem during a visit to the Lincoln Memorial. 16. In some U.S. schools, armed cops accompanied by police dogs actually conduct surprise raids with their guns drawn. In this video with a link, you can actually see police officers aiming their guns at school children as students are lined up facing a wall. Back in 2009, this is number 17, an eight-year-old boy in Massachusetts was sent home from school and was forced to undergo psychological evaluation because he drew a picture of Jesus on the cross. Psychological evaluation for your religious beliefs. Yeah. And it's the Christians who are crazy because they want their children to know about creationism. Okay. This year, 13 parents in Duncan, South Carolina, were arrested for cheering during high school graduation. How dare you cheer the graduation of your children? The police will arrest you. Welcome to America. This is from 2011. You think it got better? Or you think it got worse? Again, if you doubt any of these claims, there's a link in the show notes to the article, and every single claim in the article is backed up by regular news source that proves that it did actually occur. Okay, let's talk about this problem a little bit deeper before we move on to what I think the solution is. The prevailing objection that I get when I talk about how bad education is, we're not spending enough money, and money has been taken out of the system. And the truth is, we're spending more money per student today than we ever have ever in the history of education. So that's based on individual states and based on a national average. The number of dollars spent per student has gone up almost every year consecutively for over 100 years. There's been times recently where it might have dropped like a quarter of a point in one state, but it immediately goes back up. It's generally when the population of the state swells because they're doing some things right, so more people immigrate to the state and the population of students increases faster than the state's planning for the student increase. And it usually adjusts itself very quickly. So we're spending more money per student than we ever had before. And then I want you to understand that schools, by and large, control their own graduation rates. Okay, so And states definitely do. So states set their standards and do all these things and determine whether or not teachers have a lot of leeway and what have you. So you would think that the graduation rate would be a fair way to judge the dollars of spending. I'm going to give you the 10 states with the highest graduation rates. And there's a link to a source where you can verify it, and it's a real source. I didn't make it up. These are the 10 states, starting with number one, going down to number 10, for the highest graduation rates in the country. Virginia, Arkansas, Missouri, Hawaii, Ohio, Wyoming, Arizona, Delaware, North Carolina, Minnesota. Okay? Got that? Those are the top 10 states that graduate students at the highest level in the country. Now, you would think a lot of them 
would spend the most money. I'm going to read to you now the 10 states, one district, that spend the most money per pupil and see how many you hear here. New York, District of Columbia, Alaska, this is going in order, New York being the highest and we're going down from here, New Jersey, Vermont, Wyoming, Connecticut, Massachusetts, Maryland, and Rhode Island. One. Wyoming. One state made both lists. Only one state spends the most top ten per student and graduates the most top ten by rate. One. One of ten. And I'd say Wyoming, small population, uh, it, it's almost an, an aberration, right? In, in science, you would call this a statistical anomaly, right? The rest of these, the, these states are, are ridiculous in their spending versus their graduation rates. So out of the top 10 in, in spending per student, only one is in the top 10 for graduation per student. So that alone kind of tells us more money's not going to fix the problem. Now, let's talk about, in comparison, students that don't go to public school, students that are homeschooled, as, as it's called. Um, right now, there's over 2 million students that are being homeschooled. That number's huge compared to what it was 20 years ago. That shows the dissatisfaction, so parents know there's a problem. Um, and I have a great infographic that I have linked to for you guys at Homeschool World that shows the dominance by homeschoolers. And just the national average percentile scores. So this is the state's test versus the parent's education, right? So the state takes its students and says, hey, you know, you guys all take the test that we created. And, of course, the state is going to – all the students are going to be in the 50 percentile, right? It's not a direct comparison, really, to be fair. But you would think that, you know, homeschoolers, if homeschooling is not as good as the state's schooling, that homeschoolers would, you know, test below the 50th percentile. In reading, they tested the 89th percentile overall, language 84, math 84, science 86, social studies 84, uh, combo of reading, language, and math 88, and combo of overall subtest 86 percentile. So overall... Uh, homeschoolers test in the, about the 84 to 89th percentile, depending on the subject you're testing. So clearly they're doing something right, and they're doing it better. Because they're not going out to the median average of 50%. How about this? You know what percentage of homeschoolers that go on to college, start college, actually complete it? 66%. The number of students to go to the Star College out of the public education system, the complete college, 57%. And i got to tell you something. Going back to the way it used to be is not going to fix the problem. Um, I'm guilty of it, too. Someone else say, well, when I was a kid, you know, I did it in this episode already. You know, when I was a kid, if a teacher had, or a student had been given a ticket for something like using a bad word or arrested for writing on a desk and handcuffed, that the school staff would have been accountable in a physical way if necessary. And I mean it. I'm telling you, where I grew up in the coal region of Pennsylvania, if a student had been handcuffed and arrested by the police department for writing on a desk, there would have been a mob at the school. 
and it would have been either fixed or somebody would have been in a lot of trouble. And yes, I mean physically. Like, no, people would have just not stood for it. Like, you're not doing this, and you're never doing this again. And it, because of that, it's not like, well, it was mob mentality. No, because that was the case, it never happened. But that is about parent, how much the tolerance of the parent has, has waned over time. And let me tell you why. It's waned over time because every generation is the product of the system. So the programming is deeper at each generation. Your children will come out of this more tolerant to what's done to their children than you are, just as you're more tolerant as what, to what's done to your children than your parents were, and they were more tolerant to what was done to you than your grandparents. The system is progressing forward in the tolerance of parents to the abuse of children. So it's natural to say, well, you know, it didn't used to be this way, and it was better. But how about it wasn't better, it was not as bad? Because the system, again, the system is based on an 1880s Prussian model designed to create conformity. We live in a society today, okay? Think about this. We live in a society today where things are obsoleted every year, every month practically. Industry's been obsoleting products for hundreds of years. Many of the products and services that you and I personally use as children that we would have thought were critical to our daily lives are gone. They're not here anymore. They've disappeared. Some of them, if you found one and took them out to a person today that was 20 years old and said, what is this? They wouldn't even know what it was. So why do we hang on to a model of education created in Prussia in the 1880s, in 2014? Can't we do better than that? And bluntly, should we turn to our public officials, politicians, and bureaucrats who live off this flawed system for a solution, can we really expect that those who were created by the system, developed the system, expanded the system, and then profit from the system are going to fix it? Frankly, if we actually think that's going to happen, if we actually believe that the system of education today that is so fundamentally flawed that all the things I've told you today are true, the comparisons to prison, the abuses of our children, the things our children are told to endure, the tolerance of our parents, the, the, the lack of, of actual hard skills, ability, and critical thinking that our students graduate without having. If these people created it, profit from it, and are vested in it, and we actually expect that they will fix it, are we not fools? Would you turn to a drunken, alcoholic, dr you know, drug-addicted uncle living in your house to fix your home and balance your budget? Especially if he had gotten a hold of the checkbook and ran the family into financial oblivion. Would you say, well, one day, Uncle, Uncle, you know, Uncle Sam will fix it? Or would you say, we cannot trust this guy? Right? He benefits off our misery. And he's d demonstrated himself to be incompetent, and he's actually better off if he doesn't fix the problem because we're so busy worried about the problem that he can just skate by. Well, in the educational system today, the people that actually make the rules, the people that are actually in control, are actually doing very well for themselves. Teachers may not be paid that well. I think that's highly debatable. I think it's highly based on where the teacher teaches, what district they're in how good they are, what grade they teach at. 
um, and how we actually figure out what the teacher's making. Because uh, if you get three months a year off and every weekend off, and we factor that down to the hour, even teachers that we say are poorly paid are paid better than a lot of people doing a lot physically more difficult, demanding work. I'm not saying teachers are paid high or low or what I'm just saying. We can make a case that teachers are underpaid, certainly in some areas. But we cannot make a case that administrators are underpaid. We can't. Many of these people are making very, very good incomes. And people running large school districts are making as much money as CEOs. So those are the people that choose whether or not to change the system. And when something's working for you, you are seldom likely to change it. Especially if you broke it in the first place and you think broken is good. So we are mere fools if we think that anybody that's vested into this is going to fix it. They're going to try to tweak it. They'll try to appease you because you're the customer. You're the one paying the taxes. They know they can only push that force of the state so far with that before people actually revolt. So they will comply with certain things. But they're trying to fix something that's already broken. If I brought, if you were a doctor and I brought you a patient, and that patient was 92 years old, had six types of cancer, had cardiopulmonary diseases, was 450 pounds overweight, not just 450 pounds, and I said, fix it, you'd say, there's no point. There's no way to fix it. This person's going to die. And if I said, well, make them as comfortable as possible, you might do that. But if I said, well, invest heavily, take every resource, every dollar, every penny you have, we must save this person, you'd say, I'm sorry, there's people that we need to save, that we can actually save. There's nothing we can ever do to save this person. That's our public education system. And the solution to it is planned obsolescence. This is, this is what, and we all need to be a part of this at least a little bit. Homeschooling can only take us so far. The issue with homeschooling is, in many instances, largely an emulation of the current ed educational system at home. We just move the desk and bring the student out, and it's a great start. And a lot of homeschoolers are figuring that out and going way beyond it, and good for you. But homeschooling is inherently limited. It's inherently limited. Because generally, it requires at least one parent to not work and stay home. And society has been engineered to make that very, very difficult financially. Very difficult. It also is the case that a lot of parents that would adopt or um, take in foster children are prohibited from doing this. If you have foster kids and you're like, you know, where, where are you going to send your kids to school? Oh, we're going to homeschool. <laughs> really? No, no, you're not going to be doing that. Those children may be the ones that would benefit the most from that type of, of an education, honestly. Honestly, as I think about that. But just a general, average, everyday Joe. Middle income earner, working hard, trying to earn a living. And if mom and dad you know, have a baby, baby's coming up in the world, about to get into that kindergarten, first grade age, when they look down and run the numbers a lot of times, they're like, I, we can't afford... We can't afford to do this. We can't afford to homeschool. And both parents feel woefully inadequate to, to, to teach you know, kindergarten, but I think the average person could teach kindergarten. I really do. 
especially to one or two people. But they have this feeling. So there, there is both a lack of confidence because we have so made teachers the heroes they are not. I mean, you would think that teachers can jump on a Pegasus horse and slay the Kraken for the hero worship that is done by politicians pandering for votes and the willingness of the population as a whole to drink it down like pablum. There are some teachers who I would say, when you look at what they've done, you look at how they work, they are heroic. But being a teacher does not make you a hero. Any more than being a soldier makes you a hero. If you're a soldier, I appreciate you. But you're not a hero just because you're a soldier. You're a hero because you're a soldier that did something heroic. And we should have no more heroic worship of teacher than we have heroic worship of a soldier. But yet we do. You're not a hero because you teach first grade. And anybody thinks that they... See, and here's the thing. The teachers love to hear that. They love to hear that because everybody likes to hear you say wonderful things about you, right? They, they, people love to hear people say wonderful things about them. But if you ask most teachers to, your, to their face, are you personally a hero because you're a teacher? They'll say, no. Well, then, <laughs> then how can we have all this hero worship because, because people teach? It's a job. It's a job like fixing cars or programming computers or training people at a job, which will also be teaching, by the way. It's a job every parent does if they're a good parent with their children. The child's first teacher and most influential teacher should always be the parent. We've heard that somewhere before. So it's it's ridiculous that we have this belief that we have this, this this system that's so great and these people that are so super that it must be preserved at all costs. And again, remember, we have to separate the teacher who is the person from the school, which is a system. And we, we obsolete systems. People's jobs become obsolescent, but people do not become obsolescent. They improve their skills and they adapt their talents if they want to achieve anything anyway. So the first thing I think that really needs to be done is a complete new look at common skills and knowledge as a base. Up to, and I, you know, there's people that are smarter than me, they can figure this out at a higher level, but I'd say up to like the, the fifth or sixth grade level. Could be as low as the fourth, could be as high as like what you would call seventh today. I'm talking about age brackets, not really grades, because like, I think grades are stupid in, in, in themselves. I don't mean scores, I mean like first grade, second grade, third grade. That exists... Because of the way the state runs education, it's necessary. I mean, you understand that, right? That, we, that when we take that many students and cram them into a building, and we have this much chaos going on, this much abuse going on, this much infighting among students, this many cliques, all of the stuff that goes along with running an institution like a prison, be, albeit a minimum security, decent prison, still like a prison, that you have to create divisions... And at that developmental stage in life, you have to create divisions based on age. So you have to have a first grade, second grade, third grade system there. So when I say fifth, sixth grade level, I'm talking about age. I believe by the age, the average students in fifth, sixth grade, seventh grade, 
that the common skills and knowledge base that they need to further their learning is more than attainable. I believe that a sixth grader should be able to read probably better than the average 12th grader can today. And I believe it's doable, and I actually don't believe it's hard. If we have those students reading the things they're interested in, they will learn to read more rapidly. And it's, with small instructional sizes, we can tailor the additional learning to students that struggle with reading to them. But I think everything should be built off of something that we can all agree on. You know, kids need to be able to know what a noun is, you know, what the subject of a sentence is, what the predicate of a sentence is, what a verb is, what an adjective is, how to divide a, a, a sentence with a comma. Basic reading, writing, math, a basic concept of history, a basic concept of the civics by which their nation is operated and run under, strongly based on the constitutions of the state they reside in and the constitution of their nation. Right? I mean, we should understand these things at that age. And we can. And to act like we can't teach kids that much by then is ridiculous. And I actually think that we could be teaching students that much at a higher level, at a better retained level, and a better understood level, if we did it by that age, than waiting to, to continuously repeat this crap to them and repackage this crap to them all through their high school years. Then the next thing we need to do, and this is not on my list, but I really think we need to take a look at this crap where we, we have this belief that all people need to learn trigonometry and calculus and all this, this high-end math that we tell them they're going to need this one day when we know it's bullshit that 80% of people will never use it. That doesn't mean that we're not going to learn basic math. And I don't just mean like your times tables. I'm talking about basic math, basic mathematical formulas, and very basic algebra. And I think that everybody that learns those things benefits by them. My dear Aunt Sally, multiply, divide before you add and subtract. Uh, if you've never heard that before, it's an easy way for you to remember it. I was taught that in sixth grade. I've remembered it my entire life. So that basic formulaic math when there's a problem and what brackets and parentheses mean so you understand basic mathematics, basic algebra, and when you're not just looking for equals at the end, sometimes the number's buried in basic algebra. Basic mental algebra, things like 47 times 32, right? and how to break that down into two problems and recombine them in your head. Basic stuff. We teach children that, and then we create hundreds of options for completing the base. Entrepreneurs need to start building websites, curriculums, I know there's sites that sort of do this already. I'm not saying just pile on to them and add more. I'm saying build thousands of options, hundreds and thousands of options. Where a parent can say, I want my, this is not working for my kid. My kid's not learning this. I'm going to try this. Oh, that works. Okay, great. This one works for my son. This one works for my daughter. It's not one's better than the other. It's tailored to the individual. There should be as many choices in education as we have, at least for smartphones and computers. It's more important, isn't it? The options for your education should be seen as more important than the options for your personal computer or your, your, your smartphone. We don't have one kind of... I love iPhone. I really do. I think it's the best phone in the market. But I, would, I, I do not want to see a world where there's only the iPhone. You know, there's, there's no Android and, 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 you know, all these other phones that are out there. They don't exist. They just, you know, there's just one operating system and one phone. 
What a terrible world. Because you may hate the iPhone. You might. I may hate the phone you have. We shouldn't have to use a phone we don't like. You may love Apple. I may love PC. In my case, I've migrated to Apple. But you may want something different than I do. You may really put a priority on the processor speed of your computer. I may put my, my priority on, the, on the, the total memory, the capacity. It all depends on what my, my goals are. Well, our education should work like that. We should be able to find teachers we resonate with, programs we, we resonate with. And even when we're trying to learn the same thing, if we have to take different pathways to get there, we should be able to. Now, here's the thing. You cannot do that in public education. In a place where everybody goes to school, everybody's in the same grade, everybody sits in line at a desk, everybody listens to the same teacher. You can't do it. Now, defending the development of the system a little bit here. In 1950, what I'm talking about was logistically impossible on a grand scale. It was impossible. You would have had to have tiny little schools all over the place, homeschools all over the place, and you would have had to have it completely decentralized, and you would have had to hope that it worked out. So with that, and you're looking at the education of your nation, you say, we've got to centralize this, we've got to pull people in, we've got to do this. The, 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 the free market can't really do this at, at the numbers and the levels and the geographic diversity of, of our nation. that We have people that live in little towns and big cities, and the only way we can make sure that everybody gets at least this basic understanding how to add, subtract, multiply, and divide, how to read, how to form a sentence, how to think logically and critically. We have to centralize it, and we have to have a, a common objective, and we have to have oversight. That's how the system was sold. And there was some legitimate reasoning behind it. But today we live in a world where most welfare recipients have DSL. Do you get that? And that means the information can be disseminated almost at the speed of light. It's not actually the case due to something called nominal velocity of propagation, but only college graduates should know that, right? <laughs> I'm not going to explain what that is. You can go look it up if you want to. The, the term again is NVP, or nominal velocity of propagation. It's one of the reasons, one of the reasons that the communications that move around the world on the Internet and phones don't actually travel at the speed of light. One of the reasons. That it has to do with optical and metallic. Anybody can tell me the other one. First person to tell me the other one. Okay, I'm not going to tell you what NVP is. One's for optical, which is fiber optics. One's for copper. NVP's for one of the two. You have to determine what the other one is. Tell me what it's called and what it means. First person can send me an email with that in it. Put NVP in the subject line. I'll give you a free lifetime membership to the MSB. There's some independent thinking and critical learning. This is how I would develop programs for students. Give you a piece of information, tease you with it, and say, now figure it out and why it matters. That'd be a pretty easy one right there if you look it up. But we need to create hundreds and thousands of options. And when we get the base down, this, this fundamental base, the, the basics of language, science, history, etc., once that's done, then we need to create thousands or tens of thousands of options for highly specialized education. 
And we don't need to wait for this. We don't need a national organization. People just need to do this. And, and we don't need Kickstarters, but if you can do one and it works, great. And we don't need organizations. And initially, we just need people to say, I am going to create an educational program for people to learn basic history, and I'm going to put it at the level that a six to seven year old kid would understand, and I'm going to teach it in a unique way. And I'm going to put it out there. And I'm either going to sell it or I'm going to give it away. Right? And I would give it away at first. That's just marketing, though. Right? I think in time, people can become in high demand and be paid better than a teacher ever could be if you're good at this. And somebody else needs to say, I, I don't want to teach you know, American history to, to seven or eight-year-olds. I want to teach kids that would normally be at that high school age to go beyond what schools ever teach them with the concepts of physical science or cosmology. Build it. Just do it. Don't ask any, don't worry about who says it's good. Don't worry about who says it's bad. Just build it and make it available. Build an entire lecture series on it. Do anything from a 60-minute presentation to a full-on class with courses and everything. Just do it. Just build it. Build it and they will come, right? We need, I mean, we need thousands of people because if we get a thousand people to try, 900 will be abysmal failures. And you need to be one of the 900 to eventually be one of the 100. No one that does this the first time is really going to hit a home run with it. They're going to learn as they teach. You learn best what you teach. But we need entrepreneurs and cause-minded individuals to just say the hell with this and build new educational models. And as we develop this, as this does happen, then we do need to create our own private standards bodies at all levels. I think we should get to a point where, do you have a high school diploma? No. That's, that's for people that, that do the least. I have a certified graduation from the, uh, the, the American National Homeschoolers Association. And right now, if you had that, you know what that would be? Let me go, well, you don't have a real diploma then. I want that to mean more. And I'll tell you what, for employers and for colleges that want your money, I'm telling you, if they could go somewhere and look at the curriculum, the requirements, the testing, and, and just go, well, that's a lot more than a person out of, you know, Sheboygan High School has, guess what? It matters immediately. We should be developing higher learning that kids are engaging at in their early teens that lead toward careers. We, do you, it is ridiculous that a child is held back from true development until the collegiate level or into the post-high school level in some other way. Yeah, there's some Votech schools and stuff like that now and all, but really, they're held back. There's kids that know, I want to be a game programmer. Well, what, what if, there's only so many room for so many game programmers, but there's a lot of room for great game programmers. And do you know what you have to learn how to do to be able to program video games? Get this. This is crazy. I know it's crazy. You're gonna, it's gonna blow your mind. You have to learn how to program computers. So if that same student was telling you, I want to learn to be a computer programmer, we go, yay, Johnny, yeah, let's go to Harvard, learn to program computers, yay. And then when you got a job programming games, you go, well, that's cool. See? 
But if, 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 he, if he starts off with, I want to learn to program games, oh, well, it's kind of like being a rock star, you know? I mean, it happens for some people, but I've heard you play the guitar, you're not that good. You know, just having long hair is not going to make it happen, you know? I want a degree in musical studies. Oh, that's okay. I think the, the, the period of time between about 12 and 24 is when the mind is most open to the possibilities that lie before it. And we take the majority of that time and we use it to crush the spirit and we use it to crush the soul and derive conformity from the nonconformist. And if you think about it, if they go to college and take five, six years or more to get through it, like most people do nowadays, it's pretty much over. It's pretty much over when you come out of college. It's gone. It's done. Why do you think that the greatest achievers in the modern world either quit college or started their achievement before they were done? Steve Jobs, Bill Gates. You can hate them both. You can love them both. I don't care. But the truth is, neither one of them waited till they were done with their education to begin their occupation. You can't actually show me someone that changed the world that did. You can't actually show me someone that evolved society forward that did. No one. If you look at the titans of brand today, the new titans of brand, Mark Zuckerberg, you can hate him. I don't care. I don't particularly have any love for the guy, but I know this. He didn't wait to finish his education before he began his occupation. So why do we have a model that basically states that's the way it works? See, you go to school for a certain amount of time. You get a piece of paper. That piece of paper says you're qualified to do certain jobs and not qualified to do other jobs. And all the good jobs require another piece of paper where you go to another school and when you get that second piece of paper, then you qualify for a whole bunch more jobs, even though you actually don't qualify for anything because you've never done anything, but the system sells to, sells to you that way. Now, if you want really, really great jobs, you can get a third piece of paper that says something like master's, PhD, doctorate on it, and then you can have these other really, really good jobs. And with the exception of that next tier of higher education, that master's degree and forward, we pretty much have set the expectation that you don't really begin your career at all until you get your first piece of paper. And if you do that, you're going to have a shitty career. So you really don't begin your career at all until your second piece of paper. So that piece of paper is the delineation point of when you stop your education formally and begin your occupation. It's insane. It's absolutely insane. And there is a correlation with more and more people accepting that way of thinking. In a society today where less and less children take part-time jobs as students. I, I, I can't prove it because I didn't look up the statistics, but I bet there's less 16-year-olds per capita holding jobs today than, than any time in the last 50 to 100 years. I'll bet that's the case. When I was in school, it seemed like everybody that I knew had a job, at least for part of the year, at least for summer or whatever. And it wasn't always a J-O-B type of job where, okay, well, you got a job working at the mall and you work at Sears and you vacuum the floor at the end of the day or buff the floor in the hallways or whatever. It wasn't always a job like that. You know, for me, I had some jobs that were like that. 
worked in a turkey farm. That was eye-opening and tough and difficult. I worked in a grocery store. Um, can't say I learned a lot other than I did learn the value of hard work, and I learned I didn't want to work for minimum wage. But I also did things like I worked for a guy that had a junkyard pulling parts. And it was a great job for a kid. It really was. It was like, here's how it happened. I got this car. I worked really hard for the car by picking up old copper from abandoned mines on the, on the mountain all summer long and carrying it down and selling it at this junkyard. And I made enough money to buy the car, pay for six months of insurance, and have enough gas that my dad felt that I could drive the car for at least two or, two or three months with, with the money I had on the gas. So he said, okay, I'll, I'll let you buy the car. Because you can't just buy a car when you're 16. Somebody has to sign for you and get you insurance and all that. So I had to do that, so got the car. A week after I got the car, driving the car, and all of a sudden I put the gas down, and it's like the car's in neutral. So I look at the shifter, and it's not in neutral. It's in drive. The transmission is gone. I can't afford a brand-new transmission for my Pontiac Grand Prix. So I go back to the junkyard where I sold all the copper, and I ride my bike. And the guy that's there says, well, I thought you um, thought you got a, uh, a car. What are you doing up here on your bike again? I'm like, well, I got a car, and... You know, uh, now the car doesn't work because the transmission's out, and I wanted to come up here and see you about, you know, if you have a TH400 transmission for a Pontiac. So I got loads of them back there, but you're not going to haul it back on your bike. And I said, no, I just want to see if you have one, how much it costs, and uh, I'll bring my tools up and, and, and get it out, and, and then my dad will come and pick it up. And he says, oh, you're going to do it yourself? I said, well, yeah, me and a couple friends. He says, really? Okay. So we show up, and we pull the transmission out, And uh, he says, what are you going to do? Or, you know, you, how are you going to do this? I said, well, we got a rebuild kit, and we'll put it in my car. I can't afford to have somebody do it, so we're going to figure it out. My buddy's uncle has a garage he's going to let us use and what have you. And he goes, well, you seem like you could pull parts, like you know, small parts and stuff by yourself. I went, yeah. He goes, how do you like a job? I said, okay, how's it work? He goes, you just show up any day. Any day you want to, you show up. And if I have any work for you, I'll tell you what it is. And I have people calling me all the time for parts. Someone has to go out and pull them. I'll pay you per part you pull. I said, I don't see any reason not to do that. He says, bring your tools. Show up you know, pretty much whenever you want. But if you don't show up regularly, it's not going to keep happening. So I did that a lot. I'd go three or four days a week. And I'd say, you know, when you know you're going to have a lot of people, you know, call the house. Leave me a message with my grandmother. Right? Because... <laughs> There were no answering machines or voicemails, you know, and I'd go out there and I'd pull parts and I would make like 15 bucks an hour and it was cash money as a kid. So there's no taxes, right? So kids had jobs. Kids had jobs. Kids earn money and you learn a lot from things like that. You learn what you want to do and what you don't want to do. Do you know how many kids we have coming out of school with a degree and they still don't really know what they want to do with it? Because they've never worked. Our educational models need to incentivize working. You know, not through just stupid shit like work study. You can get out early if you have no classes and a job to go to. I, I'd call that work release like prison. I had it when I was in high school. Like the last two hours of the school day... For my junior and senior year, I was never there because I had a place to go to work. I had to prove I had a place to go work at. But work study. Work release. But instead of just saying, like, you can go work, we should be incentivizing children to work. 
Your job should be part of your research. There's so many, and, and, and the thing is, we don't know. We don't know what we'll come up with because we've never tried. It's like when people say, well, how would a libertarian government work? I don't know. Why don't we try it and figure it out? Who knows what solutions we could come up with if we tried? Now, the thing is, everybody in the public education sector is stuck on stupid, to quote General Honoré, right, from the whole Katrina debacle, when he told the press, you guys are stuck on stupid, when they were getting ready for Hurricane Rita, and they asked, well, why didn't this happen for Katrina? You're stuck on stupid. Well, America, you're stuck on stupid with the public education system. It's back what I said earlier. You're wanting the people that built it, that screwed it up, and that profit from it to fix it. They're not going to. And you want their blessing. You want their, their approval. We don't need their approval. We don't need their blessing. We don't need anything from them. And you know what we really don't want? We don't want their money. Because their money's not their money to give us. Their money belongs to the people they stole it from. So if we're to build a new model of education, we need to do it with money that's all voluntarily given or out of our own pockets. If we're going to build a model that works and it needs to have money come into it, we need to have people that voluntarily pay for that. Well, Jack, that's called private school. We already have that. Only rich kids can go to it. Really? Really? You don't think in a day and age where we can make a cheeseburger profitably for 99 cents. We can't come up with a private education system that's affordable for people. You really think so? You really think we can't come up with a system that doesn't involve kids going to a building every single day? That we can't come up with a system that provides accountability and assistance to a parent so they know their child is getting enough of an education, that there is enough of a testing and accountability? We can't do that. You think uh, the the innovation of a people who created a light bulb more than a hundred years ago can't do that? You think the innovation of a people that didn't stop, that created an internet and a Google, you, you, you think we can't come up with affordable, accessible, private education? Are we that weak? The only reason we have it is because the public system sort of works and it's there. But it's, it's going to die anyway. The reality is we do not fix this system. We don't. We hurl it careening into the obsolescence it's already on the way towards. It's done. It, it's over. It cannot continue. Parents are going to begin extracting their children from this system in droves. There's two million students that have already exited the system, and they're doing better than those that stayed behind. And and, and the, the establishment is screaming, it's their fault that we're failing. They're taking away our students and our money. It's They're not your students. They're their children. It's not your money. It's my money and the taxpayers' money. You don't have any money. You don't produce anything that anybody's paying for you, paying you for voluntarily. You are thieves. The people running this system is are, are thieves. They're stealing. And as we heard in our in our history segment today, only the collapse of this system can repair it. 
When I say this, people always want to defend the system, and it always goes to defending the teacher, and I'm going to tell you right now, any comments, emails, anything, that tell me how great teachers are, are going to be ignored in my response. I'm not even going to dignify them with a response. If you give me a long response, and I bother to read it, and it has anything in it that I respond to, but there's something about teachers, I'm going to ignore it. I'm going to ignore it. Because it's like debating how to cure pneumonia and telling me that coughing can be good for you. Coughing is a symptom. The, the, the teachers, apathetic and otherwise in our society today, good and bad, are symptoms of the disease. They are not the disease. They're not the cause of the disease. Some of them are aggravating symptoms, and some of them are mitigating symptoms. But the disease is the system. Teachers try hard, and they're buying Kleenex out of their own pocket. I don't care. First of all, why are you buying Kleenex out of your own pocket? And second of all, why do you think I care? Why do you think that matters? I, I never saw such a thing when I was a kid in school, and somehow we survived. Children can't learn in trailers. They have these mobile classrooms, and these kids are in these trailers learning. I went to, when I was in school, they had mobiles, they called them. Classrooms that were brought in to deal with, we learned in there. What's the difference? They're going to be emotionally scarred? Because the building they learned in is movable? This is a symptom. Too many people in one school. It's a symptom. It's not the problem. The problem is a belief that only the state can do this. As I finish up today, let me, let me cut right to it. The problem is a deep-seated, brainwashed belief in the American public that only the state can effectively educate a child, which is a completely irrational belief, though many of us cling to it. Many of us cling to it. It's completely irrational because every day, parents all over this country now numbering in the millions of students, are showing us that they can educate their children without the state. They're demonstrating it. And, and frankly, many of the students coming out of public education with good grades when it comes down to science fairs and scholarships are having their hats handed to them by these students. And I do want to come up against one of the most common objections here in pulling our children out of these these schools the, the way that they are now. Social skills. They won't have social skills. They won't know how to deal with people. Well, first of all, let me say I've, I've met the children of many homeschoolers, and I have found in every case that I've personally spoken to one of these children an ability to communicate at a higher level than the average student of their age that's gone to public schools with me. So that seems like their social skills are pretty high if they can communicate with me at a high level. But school is not reality. It's prison. There is you have to learn to deal with normal people in the real world. School's not the real world. School is an artificial reality television pseudo prison type of world. We've talked about this already before and even today. But my God, if you go to work 
and your coworker pushes you, the consequences to him are severe. It's assault. He's probably looking at jail time if you want to be a dick about it. If you report him, he's fired. He won't do it. It would take a lot for it to happen. It's not the real world. When you go to work, if you're not invited to somebody's party, you don't think your life's over. Society is nothing like school. It really isn't. You do not learn social skills and functioning in the real world in school. You learn artificial conformity is required in school. The objection is almost not worth responding to because it's not true. It's not an objection like many objections. We're like, okay, you're making a good point, but here's why that's counterbalanced. It's as though your objection is, but see, the reason that we need this color glasses to see better outside is because the sky is orange. Uh, no, it's it's blue. No, that's orange. Um, but I'm I'm looking out right now. At the sky, and it's blue. It's always been blue. The same color of this crayon that says blue on it, and it's blue. No, it's orange. You mean like during a sunset? No, no, all the time. It's it, during daylight hours when it's clear out. It's 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 an orange sky. Prove me wrong. And you know what you'd say to a person that says that? I'm not wasting my time. I will not cast my pearls amongst swine. This is just a pointless, nonsensical pile of. I'm not. You're not baiting me into this. When someone says that children that, that don't go to public schools don't understand the reality of social situations, they've just told you the sky is orange. It, 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 it's, it, the only reason to respond to it, as opposed to the sky is orange claim, is so many people believe it. But there's your counter-argument. Where in society are people treated the way that they are in schools. Where in society do people have to tolerate abuse by others the way they do in school? Where in society, if one person hits another person, it's considered, eh, it's not that, you know, God, yeah, we got to stop that, but it's, you know, whereas if you're walking down the street and I walk up to you and punch you, I've assaulted you. Where in society are people told exactly what to eat, even if they don't like it, and when to eat it? Where in society does any of this happen other than school? And the answer is, in prison and jail. You're teaching children institutional reality in school. You're teaching them institutional social skills in school. You're not teaching them natural social skills. It's a nonsensical thing. So can we do this? Can it happen? Is it real or is it just a fanciful dream that we could actually obsolete the modern education system? I think it is. I think we need to use a hybrid. Nullification, like we talked about last week, and obsolescence as a means to the end. Nullification, I think we need parents that are just going, my kid's not going to your school. Well, then they have to go to our approved, certified... No, they're not doing that either. 
We have our own program. We'd like to see it. No. Now, I think you need to get like a couple thousand parents in the same area doing that at the same time to, to do it with nullification. But I think once it happens, it's like anything else. I think we need to have somebody stand up with a standards body and says, this is a new standards body for education in America for homeschoolers. And no one has to use it. This is what we propose. And we need like 20 of those. This is what we propose. This is how we do it. This is how we certify it. Blah. Here it is. And if you're asked, well, which one, what are you doing? Why we use this group here? Well, let me see it. Well, you can go to their website and see the standards that we do. Well, I want it. No, this is my home. This is my family. This is the walls of my house. You have no right to intrude on my privacy. Go away. I think that's down the road a little bit. I think if somebody hears me do that and you try that tomorrow, you might end up with the Gestapo with a boot on your throat. And I don't want that to happen. But I think that needs to be where we're progressing towards. And I think if we're going to begin a journey, we have to know where we're headed. And that's like that's where I'd like to see us headed, to the point where when the state says, well, we don't approve of this, everybody goes, we don't care. We don't care. And we're not doing it. And we need people within the state working to make allowances for that, just like we've seen with we talked about last week with nullification. It's ridiculous that farmers can't grow hemp in America. Not marijuana, hemp. You can smoke 100 pounds of it, and all you're going to get is a headache. It doesn't get you high. It's not marijuana. It's not a drug. It's hemp. It was banned under the same laws that banned marijuana. I don't know, care what you believe about marijuana or not. You could not make a case for making hemp illegal. And I've never heard anybody make a compelling case for it, ever. So the state of Colorado just said, eh, we're going to make a permit that says you can do this. So I think that we need to take down at the state level, down at the local level, down at the county level. Counties can do this. Why can't a county say, you know what, we've approved in, uh, in our county that uh, people that want to do this can do this? Now, you're asking them to give up their own monies, are you not? I mean, but, I mean, the way you phrase this to a bureaucrat is, well, imagine if you didn't have that big bill for public education or you had less of it. They're not going to stop taxing people, are they? So what would you do with the rest of that money? Well, Jack, I don't want them to have the money at all. Let's get out of this first. That will make a case that you don't need that money anymore. But let's take the first step. But that's what we need, guys. And I'm not saying everybody here is going to do something, but I think everybody here should do a little bit somehow, some way. Some, just tell people. Tell people there's an option. You know, and here's the thing. Whenever I speak about this, I always get tons of emails from homeschool parents. But there's already this, and there's already that, and there's already this, and there's already... Every homeschool parent should have a blog. You should be blogging every day about all the resources that are available. You should be telling people that are not homeschoolers about it. Because the truth is your target isn't me. I am a podcaster with a 24-year-old son. My days for seeing his education at this level are gone. I missed my window. You need to be talking to young parents the ones that have just come out of this system, the ones whose tolerance for abuse by the system is higher than any time in history, and start, start. you see, this is the problem. It's often the case that when you find someone that's being abused by their parents, for instance, clear cases of abuse, abuse that anybody would look at and go, that's just wrong, man, no human being should, and you talk to the child and say, well, do your parents abuse you? No. Have they ever abused you? No. 
Well, have they ever done this? Well, yeah. So you don't think that's abuse? No. Did it hurt? Oh. What about this? Have they ever done this to you? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, they do that every Thursday. Well, don't you think that's abuse? The kid doesn't even know he's being abused. This is where we're at with our school system today. We have parents that do not know their children are being abused. Well, it was that way when I was in school. Well, you were being abused too. No, I wasn't. I turned out fine. Really? <laughs> are you sure? Because you're defending abuse. So maybe you turned out fine in some ways, but in other ways you're defending abuse. If, if, if you think it's okay that a kid had to have psychiatric evaluation because they drew a picture of the crucifix, yeah, you didn't turn out okay. If you think a student being suspended from school because she took her dad's lunch by accident and there was a paring knife in there, and she was an honor student, completely ridiculous that this wasn't an accident, and you think it's okay that she was charged with a crime by the criminal justice system, when I guarantee you in that same school there's been a time where one child's punched another child in the face and was not charged with assault, then maybe you didn't turn out completely okay. If you think it's okay that a kid drew a picture of a soldier and the soldier had a gun and he was expelled from school because he drew a picture of a soldier with a gun, you think that's okay, maybe it didn't turn out okay. If you think it's okay, the state can tell you, without your consent, the means by which and the material with which your child will be educated. Maybe you didn't turn out okay. Not a hundred percent. That's okay. Neither did I. Neither have most of us. We are all of us, by and large, part of this system. I went through the public education system. Most of you did too. And you're going to cling to things that you're sure were good. You're sure they were okay. But I want you to think back to when you were in school. And I want you to think about the students that were ostracized that were picked on, that were humiliated. And I want you to think about the ones that were ostracized, picked on, and humiliated by teachers, and I know you can think of some. And I want you to realize that that still happens. And I want you to realize that the next one that it's done to could be your own kid. And I want you to realize it can be done so seductively by the state that you'll think it's for their best interest. But I want you to realize that parents really do know what's best for their children. Well, there's terrible parents. Well, there's terrible priests. Okay? In general, parents love their children, care for their children, and want the best for their children. And most parents that are failing as parents today, products of the system that most people are still defending. It's time for an evolution. It's not time to fix the education sector. It's time to replace it. And I look forward to the next 20 years of seeing all the innovations. Because my call for this is a mouse fart in the universe as a whole. It's already happening. Just, I'm trying to compel you to at least be a part of it some way and somehow, someplace to be a part of it so that when you look back in 20 years and the current system really has collapsed onto itself 
And there are all these new, innovative, exciting ways that people are learning and doing more than ever before. You can know that you didn't just sit quietly by and wait. You had some role in it. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. We forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Nobody up there cares.